Grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you and turn to page 983, page 983, as we begin a series that we've entitled Preeminent, looking at the study of the book of Colossians. And we'll be doing so for the next five months. So you're going to get through Valentine's Day, you're going to get through the polar vortex, you're going to get through uh, the uh, flowers of spring, you're going to go through uh, the Easter celebration, you're going to kiss your mom, Happy Mother's Day. And uh, sometime around there when you're wearing shorts again, which sounds really good right now, uh, we'll be finishing our study of Colossians. And our small groups uh, will be doing that as well. So if you're not a part of small groups, it's a great way for you to be a part of uh, studying the Word of God in community with people around you. And you can sign up in your friendship registry uh, for that. But for these next five months, we're going to put our attention on a four-chapter book that was written more than 2,000 years ago by an aged uh, man uh, named the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a small yet growing uh, church. And yet, in spite of the age of, uh, of this letter, now 2,000 years old, uh, I don't want you to think that we got to push away the cobwebs uh, from this book, from this letter. I don't want you to think that, that because it's an ancient letter, it has no application uh, to our lives. In fact, what we're going to learn is, is that uh, not only was the Apostle Paul the writer of it, but with all books of the Bible, we know that God wrote the book of Colossians as well, moving Paul through the Spirit of God uh, to write these things, that we know the book of Colossians, though it's 2,000 years old, still has great application to us in the 21st century here in Sugar Grove at Village Bible Church as much as it did in the day uh, that it was written and read to the city and the church at Colossae. And as a result of that, we recognize that it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training uh, us for righteousness. The book of Colossians is here so that you and I, men and women, might be equipped for every good work that God has called us to. And so I want to start this series under the heading preeminent by looking at the opening salutation, the first two verses uh, of this book. And we're going to do an introduction this morning, kind of get an idea of what this letter is all about. And as we dig into it in the months to come, that we might recognize the time and days, the location, and other important truths that will help introduce the letter of uh, Colossians uh, to us uh, this morning. Now, one of the hardest messages for a preacher to preach is, uh, is an introduction, because you can go one of two ways. You can teach too little and uh, making sure there's plenty to teach, but have you walk away feeling like your Sunday morning was, was kind of a waste, or you could teach all of the book and leave nothing for the sermons uh, that will come uh, in the future. I'm going to try to strike a balance with that this morning and try to give you just a little bit. My desire is, is to be that waiter, if you will, walking around with the appetizers, just little appetizers of the book of Colossians, hopefully not filling you up so much that you don't want any more in the weeks to come, but to whet your appetite uh, in regards to that. And so let's stand as we give reverence to the Word of God, as we look at the opening two verses of this book, uh, the book of Colossians, uh, written by the Apostle Paul, not only to the church at Colossae, but to us today. Here's what Paul says in the opening verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Father God, we come and we do ask for your grace and your peace uh, to shower us this morning. We need it, Lord. We need it each and every day. We have come through a week of being thankful, and I pray that that thanksgiving for that grace and that peace that you show us in Christ Jesus 
would be made manifest in all that we say and do. As we open our study in this book, Lord, I pray that we would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to share with us this morning. That we would seek to know you as you reveal yourself through the scriptures. Lord, we thank you that we have a heritage of faith. A heritage that started way before the Apostle Paul with the patriarchs and the prophets. Lord, to the teachings of John the Baptist, to the teachings of your son, Jesus Christ, the example that he showed us, and of course, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the example now of a New Testament church that shows us how a church ought to uh, live, how it ought to believe, how it ought to uh, worship you in spirit and in truth in the 21st century. So Lord, be our guide, be, be our teacher, and I pray that all that we do this morning will have brought glory and honor to you when we are done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we open this book of uh, Colossians, I began to think about how by nature you and I as human beings are competitive. We make sports out of everything. This last uh, Thursday night into Friday, we made shopping a full contact activity. Uh, we stood in lines. We, we wanted to see if we were going to be able to outwit and, and best uh, the other people that were trying to get through the doors to get those special uh, items. Uh, we do it when uh, guys get together. We talk for hours on end as to who is the best athlete in a particular sport, and we compare their stats and the competition that they played against. We look at sports teams and try to understand and know which is the best sports team to have ever played a sport. Uh, we do that, of course, with basketball, and the answer is Michael Jordan, not Kobe or LeBron James. We do it with baseball with regards to which is the best team to have ever played. Was it any of the Cubs teams or was it the 27 Yankees? The, I, the answer is the Cubs, always the Cubs, okay? There's a couple of you that are going to heaven one day. And, and we do it, in fact, with with the sales that we were a part of this week, looking at who had the best deals and, and the best opportunities. And I've come to realize I'm getting old in life when the TVs and stuff don't get me excited, but the $2.99 jumper cables at Menards is what I'm geared up for, okay? Now, we do this in our family life as well. Some of you made where you were going to visit for Thanksgiving a competitive sport. Which mom made the best pumpkin pie? Which one makes the moistest turkey? And uh, which uncle tells the best stories? And, and once you've gone through that competition, you chose where you were going to go. Now, parents, you're in a safe place. You and I recognize we do that with our children. Which kid do we love the most, right? Which kid is going to get the inheritance? Some of your kids are looking at you parents right now. I know you're doing that. I'm just kidding, kids. You're all equal in our sight. Just keep believing that, okay? But we make everything a competition. And while that can be fun and while we can joke around about that, we need to recognize that there is a competition going on in the hearts and minds of human beings this morning. And it has to do with where Jesus Christ stands in our worlds. In the book of Colossians, as we open it, it is going to teach us over and over again that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the greatest and best in all of the universe. That Jesus Christ, 
as Paul writes us with one goal in mind, is to remind us that Jesus is the magnificent one, the marvelous one, the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, 100% human, yet 100% divine, the only supplier and sustainer of all things. And Paul uses a a word in verse 18 that he is, in fact, the preeminent one. Now, that word preeminent is the title of our series. Now, as a teaching team, the preacher spent a lot of time more time than I think we have on any other uh, series that we've done, trying to find a word that would help uh, set the stage for the book of Colossians. And we kept pushing this word away. Because this is a word that, that as we talk about, it's not a word we use very often. It's not a word that many people maybe even know what the, the proper definition is. And so we were concerned that this heavy word, this, this word that doesn't get used very often, might cause people not to know, and yet we kept coming back to it, and and we kept seeing it in Paul's writings. And so we stole the word from Paul, and we said, even though it's a word that maybe some people don't understand, we're going to tell them what it means, we're going to help them understand what it means, because it's a powerful word. This word preeminent speaks of Jesus Christ surpassing all others. Synonyms of this word preeminent are the following. That Jesus is the greatest, leading, foremost, best, finest, chief, outstanding one, excellent one, distinguished one, prominent one, eminent one, important one, top one, famous one, renowned one, celebrated one, illustrious one, supreme and marquee one. All of those point back to Jesus as defined by the book of Colossians that we are to affirm as followers of Jesus Christ and to worship Jesus Christ as, listen, simply the best. He's it. He's the greatest thing that the world has ever known, and he is the greatest thing that the world will ever know in all of eternity. And so in the next months, we're going to spend our time looking under this heading that Christ is preeminent, and how that preeminence of Jesus Christ impacts our world, it impacts our worship, and it impacts the walks that we live each and every day. But to understand this thing, We've got to back up a little bit. And we have to examine four important aspects. And I want you to know, uh, my first point's very short. My second point is even shorter. The second and third point is where I'm going to invest my time. And so we'll have you out of here in about three hours. So let's get jump right in, okay? Number one, we've got to look at what I say by the point of introduction. We've got to look at who this is written to. So we have to look to the city of Colossae. We've got to understand this book of Colossians is written to a group of people who live at Colossi. Well, where in the world is that? Well, we got to understand its location, first of all. Write that down in your outlines. Location. The city of Colossi was an ancient city, listen, that no longer exists. You cannot uh, ask for a, a plane ride to the city of Colossi. You can't go and, and ask for a taxi ride to the city of Colossi. It's no longer there. But before you think it's a figment of of Paul's imagination, I'll tell you in a minute why it's no longer there. But Paul articulates that there was a historic city called Colossae. And and historical archaeologists and both secular and and Christian both agree that Colossae was a city in what is now today modern-day Turkey. Let's look to a a map here this morning. Here's a map of modern-day Turkey. And you can see some cities that, of course, you recognize at the very bottom of the map is the city of Damascus, which is the capital city of modern-day Syria. Uh, You have, of course, Ephesus, which is a a, a large city on the uh, seashore of the Mediterranean Sea. 
Uh, that was a huge town in the days uh, of biblical times. Ephesus, of course, is where Paul would be, uh, begin a church that would be pastored by Timothy, his spiritual uh, disciple. And then in the middle of that, here in middle uh, part uh, inland from Ephesus, about 100 miles is the city of Colossae. We're going to expand it a little bit and get to know some of the cities that are around it. The city of Colossae sat uh, with two other cities around it. Notice the next map that we've got up there is the cities of Heropolis and Laodicea. All three of these cities were in the valley land, if you will, of the Lycus River. Now, Colossae was a small town, much smaller than its larger partners of Laodicea and Heropolis. I would like to say that Colossae reminds me of my own hometown, Hinkley. You see, when, when I tell people, especially when I get into the city uh, of Chicago, where do you live, Tim? I say, I live in the town of Hinkley, and the natural response is, you live where? And so then I have to define where I live by other communities, larger communities, more substantial communities uh, than the one I live in. And so I quickly say, well, have you heard of Aurora? And they say, yeah, we've watched Wayne's World. We know where Aurora's at. And then, and then I say, well, do you know of the city of DeKalb? And they say, yeah, we eat corn. We know where DeKalb is. Yeah, we're, we're, we're tracking with you. Colossae, if you were from Colossae, you were about a one day's journey, about 20 miles total from Heropolis or Laodicea. And so it's very similar to where Hinkley is in comparison to Aurora and DeKalb. Now, Colossae was a bedroom community, meaning that it wasn't known for anything in particular, but the whole valley was known for uh, some of the precious stones that came as a result of the location that it was in with regards to this Lycus River. This Lycus River allowed for many precious stones to be found, and uh, the thing that really connected Colossae with the world was through Heropolis and Laodicea were two trade routes. And these trade routes took you from Ephesus, from the Mediterranean Sea, the seaport, where most of the goods had come from, from uh, if you will, the west. But it also, this trade route connected the east, places like India and, and, and the Far East, China and other places. And so Colossae was a, a place that would see all kinds of people and all kinds of traffic as a result of its proximity to these larger cities and being in between what is, in fact, a major trade route? It's, it, again, I look to my own hometown. While Hinkley seemingly is by itself, one of the most major railroads of all the United States runs right through uh, Hinkley, Illinois. It doesn't run too far south from here as well, where all kinds of trades and, and goods funnel through uh, its uh, vicinity. And so we understand the location. Now, the question then comes up, where is it today? Well, in A.D. 61, or around that time, a massive earthquake uh, had its epicenter in the city of Colossae. It leveled it. There was nothing left of Colossae. And so what I want you to know is, is Paul writes this about five years before this great earthquake takes place. And I want you to recognize something. Paul writes to a people who aren't going to be alive for much longer. Historians believe that most people who were living in Colossae lost their lives during this massive earthquake. And if there were no homes to be found, if there's no uh, relics of any kind to be found, it was so massive, literally the city of Colossae was swallowed up by the ground. Colossae reminds us that, listen, that we don't know what a day might bring. 
And that we recognize as we come to this that we may be living in the last five years of our lives. And that every moment is important. When Paul says make the most of every opportunity uh, at the end of this letter, uh, we need to take heart because we don't know what tomorrow might bring. And so we have the location. Notice the lifestyle. There's not a lot to speak to, but just, just as is in most of the inhabitants of first century Asia Minor or modern day Turkey, commerce and religion were central to the life of of first century people, and so it was with Colossae. Now, Colossae was, again, much smaller than the other towns, so it was a quiet place to live. It was a place where, in in many ways, you could hide from all of the hubbub of what was going on in the area around it. But as trade came through, so came people. And so all types of foreign religions and spirituality and all types of customs and all types of nationalities would enter in. People for the first time in hundreds of years could move freely from, if you will, empire to empire because the Roman Empire ruled it all. And so as a result of that, the city was filled with all different types of people. Colossae was an eclectic mix of East and West, Jew and Gentile, yet seemingly living in relative peace. That's the city. We don't have much more. I've given you about all that I could come up with in my study. But notice what we have a lot of is history about the church. So notice the church that called Colossae home. And so we have four chapters, more writing, more history about the time and the life of the people and inhabitants of Colossae than we do of any other source in both secular and Christian writing. What we have in our hands. The city that no longer exists exists for, our, for their posterity and our good uh, through these four chapters that the Apostle Paul writes. And there's some truths that we need to know about them. Number one, we need to know the church at Colossae was first of all led by a, a, a group of dedicated pastors. It was led by dedicated pastors. In chapter one in the letter of Colossae, we're going to be introduced to three men. The Apostle Paul. Timothy, who was a pastor in his own right, who would one day, uh, not far from this point, uh, pastor the church at Ephesus, about 100 miles west of Colossae. And then in verse 7, we are introduced to a man who taught the gospel to the people of Colossae named Epaphras, who is called a faithful minister of Christ, who on behalf has made known the love of the Colossae people to the Apostle Paul. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to stop and talk really quickly about these three men. First of all, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, again, uh, before his salvation, was a persecutor of the people of God, a persecutor of the church. He was Saul of Tarsus. And on his way to persecute the church in Damascus, he meets Jesus Christ face to face. And in a moment, in a split second, he goes from being the great persecutor of the Christians to being the great prophet and great apostle of the Christians, preaching the way and truth of Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, I don't want us to be so quick to to be in church for so long that when we read the opening line of the book of Col- or the opening letter and verses of the book of Colossians that we just run by it. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got it good. I want to remind you 
That when you go to your workplace tomorrow and you work in your own words for that jerk boss or, or that uh, employee that just drives you up the wall, that person that you don't think can be saved in any way, shape, or form, and that the reason why you don't share the good news with them is you know they're just going to throw it away. I want us to remember the Apostle Paul, persecutor of the people of God, who in a split second bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. A reminder when we see the name the Apostle Paul should be a reminder, Village Bible Church, that no one is too far from the grace of God. No one can, uh, is, is so sinful that they cannot become a follower of Jesus Christ. By the will of God, God saves all who will bow the knee to him. Listen to me. And if he saved you, he can save sinners like you as well. And so we need to remember that. Now, Paul writes this letter with the help of Timothy. For those that really like to get into some of the deeper things of, uh, of some of uh, the uh, information, uh, so there's some real question on whether Paul's the writer of Colossians. Because there are some statements that seemingly are out of place, if you will, idioms that are used, figures of speech that are used that don't seem to come uh, from Paul. We need to remember that Paul struggled for... Uh, for some time with what seemingly is debilitating eyesight issues. And as a result of that, he, he talks about that he has scribes that help write uh, the books or the letters that, that he had uh, sent out to them. Notice in uh, verse 18, the last verse of the, uh, of the book or the letter, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And so it seems that Paul wanted to put his uh, handwriting on the letter, and then he writes verse 18 with his own hands, and he says, remember my chains, grace be with you, which tells us that someone else was taking, dictating, if you will, uh, having the letter dictated to them, and that person is young Timothy. Timothy is a young man that Paul meets in his missionary journeys. Uh, he's a man of mixed descendant. He has a Jewish mother, but a Greek father, and uh, he would, as I said, become the pastor of the church at Ephesus and himself be the recipient of two letters, first and second Timothy, from his friend and mentor, the Apostle Paul. Now, why in the world would Paul write a letter to people he's never met? How could he be a dedicated pastor to people he had never visited? Well, what's the reason why he didn't visit? Well, verse 18 tells us that he's in chains. In, in chapter 4, verse 3, it says that he is in prison for declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul cannot go because he's in, in prison, most likely right now at this point, in a prison in Rome. And so we've got the Apostle Paul and Timothy in a prison in Rome, yet instead of getting upset about God and, and their placement in God's will with regards to being put in prison, instead of worrying about themselves, Paul makes two mentions of being in prison and his focus as a pastor is on the people of God. That reminds us that when we think that God has abandoned us, when we think that God's giving us more trouble than we deserve, we need to recognize that as Christians, our focus should not be on ourselves and our circumstances, but always on others and the work of Christ. Paul never makes his imprisonment an issue. He focuses in on the needs of those with whom he serves. They're dedicated. Now, how in the world does he get connected with the church at Colossae. I want you to turn in your Bibles for a moment to Acts 19. Acts 19. 
And Acts 19 is going to help us out. So if you're in your Bibles in the book of Colossians, move back to your left for uh, just a couple books to the book of Acts. If you're following in the, in the uh, Pew Bible, I can help you out even more. It's page 928. Page 928. And in Acts 19, we are going to see how Paul gets connected with the people of Colossae. In Acts 19, it says, and, while, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, right there at, at the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, and he asked them a question, you know, how were you baptized? And they say we were baptized into John's baptism, that is the, uh, um, John the Baptist, okay? He teaches them more about Christ. They come to know faith and, and uh, trust in Jesus Christ. And notice, he lays his hands on them for ministry in verse 6. And in verse 7, we are told there are 12 men who have, their, have hands laid on them and are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, they are to go out into Asia Minor and preach the word. So notice what then takes place in verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's a name of Christianity, the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took those twelve disciples with him, and they reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, I'm going to have you... Uh, Phil, go back to that first map real quick just to give us a perspective. Wow, you're good. Okay, Ephesus is where he's at. He picks 12 men in Ephesus, and those 12 men preach and teach not only in Ephesus, but they make missionary journeys in other places. And one of those 12 men that have, their hand, have hands laid on them is the man Epaphras. And Epaphras goes to Colossae, starts preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to Colossae. There's such a movement by what Epaphras shares about what he's learned under the teaching of Paul that a church begins. And in Colossae, because of the teaching ministry of a couple years... All of Asia Minor, look all the way through Galatia, Bithynia, Pontius, Cappadocia, Sicilia, and Syria, all of that area, here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what an awesome responsibility for you and I. How much teaching has the last two years of Village Bible Church done in the areas of the Fox Valley, Elburn, Yorkville, Sugar Grove, Hinkley, Aurora, and the uttermost parts of this great valley that we live in? It took two years for the Apostle Paul to reach that every person heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can that be said of us today? Probably not. And yet they lived in a time where travel was difficult. They lived in a time where they didn't have the written word of God. And yet we pray for such little things to happen that we can work up enough gumption to ask our neighbor to come to church. And yet it took two years for 12 men to reach that entire area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are told, how did this all take place with well, this Epaphras guy? He was a faithful, in the book of Colossians, he was a faithful minister. And he was their pastor. 
And he would serve as their pastor. And, and this letter is written because Epaphras runs into struggles. He runs into issues. He goes to Paul, who is in Rome, and he says, Hey, that church that I started, it's been going really well. There's great things taking place. I want you to come and visit it when you get out of prison. Uh, but we've got some problems, and I need some wisdom. I need some guidance. And what he does, the scripture says, is he prays for his people, and he reaches out to his people, always contending for the faith, for the people. And so we've got this group of pastors that care for this community, that are giving their lives over to this group of, of people, whether they've met them or not. But who is this group of people? Notice uh, the people of Colossae uh, are a diverse group of people. So they come into the church and they look, their church looks like the world that they're living in. Remember, Colossae finds itself bringing in all kinds of people. And the church is no different. There were Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and Romans. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 3 says they even had a handful of barbarians in the mix. And even worse than that were what they called the Scythians, okay? And they were even worse than the barbarians. So, so let's talk. Who wants to be the Jews in this place? Okay, we've got a handful of you. Okay, who wants to be Gentiles? Hey, who wants to be our barbarians? Chapman, you want to be a barbarian, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be known as a barbarian? Nathan Wood? Yeah, yeah, we got it, okay. How about the worse than barbarians, the Scythians, okay? I mean, these people, man, they were nasty, okay? They were, I mean, barbarian was a nice word to use for them. And they filled the church. And they were this diverse group of people. And I want you to notice something. Amidst their skin colors that were different, the social backgrounds that they had, the economic status that they had, amidst the customs and, and, and preferences they had, all of these very different, different people, educated, uneducated, people that had, uh, if you will, um, inside voices and, and, and good eating habits, uh, they came into this, this church at Colossae, and they came and they were one under the banner of Christ Jesus. What an absolute awesome example of what Village Bible Church should look like. People of all backgrounds and all skin colors and all nationalities, uh, immigrants and, and uh, uh, native-born individuals, people that have uh, high, high-end jobs, people who, who work with their hands, people that, that uh, live in large homes, people that live in small homes, people that drive brand-new cars and people that drive not-so-brand-new cars and, and all of the different things, the things that, that the world wars against and riots against in the, in the banner or under the banner of Jesus Christ here at Village Bible Church. Paul says, as he does in Colossae, and he says to us today, we should all be one. Now, how in the world are we going to do that? Notice what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here, in the church at Colossae, notice what he says. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, uh, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. I want you to know that the letter of Philemon uh, is written to a guy named Philemon who's a slave owner in the city of Colossae and he's had a runaway slave named Onesimus and God, or God, Paul meets Onesimus in Rome and he writes a letter commending Onesimus back to his slave owner, not as a slave, but as an equal. Now think about how that would function within the church. 
The master is lifting up his hands to Jesus, learning he himself is a slave unto Christ. And next to him is his newly freed slave who announces, I no longer have any master but Christ himself. And and Paul says that we're all under Christ one. I want you to notice how does that take place? The church at Colossae had to be a place of love. Verse 14 of chapter 3 says, how do we get there? How do we get there in Colossae? How do we get there in Sugar Grove? By above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The only way blacks and whites, Hispanics and Asians will ever get together, the only way rich or poor, the only way that the dignified and the undignified, the gentlemen of our group and the barbarians of our group will ever get together is if Christ's love resonates through us and through our veins. And so when you have your issues with people in the church, remember the book of Colossians, that all these people gathered together who were so different, but they had experienced the love and forgiveness of Christ, and they recognized that to live that out means we have to love and forgive one another, as different as we may be. Let me tell you something. If our brothers and sisters in St. Louis would recognize the message that we are all one under Christ, there would be no rioting. There would be no, no, uh, uh, any, there wouldn't be any racial tension because we would all recognize we're nothing and Christ is everything, no matter our color or our background. It's a lesson we need to learn. Now notice they're different, they're diverse, but notice also they're a people that have a difficult but necessary position to play. Notice in verse 1, That this group of people are the faithful brothers who are the saints in Christ at Colossae. If you underline in your Bible, man, that's that's four words that I would underline. In Christ at Colossae. Because Paul sums up in four words what our position is, both with Christ and the world. First, he speaks spiritually. We are in Christ. Then he speaks spatially, if you will, at Colossae. Colossi. It's our dual status, our dual citizenship, if you will. We reside as Christians in two places. And to diminish one over the other is going to be detrimental to our walk with Christ and our engagement in the world. So let me explain. First of all, we are to be in Christ. What does that mean? I'm going to give you a couple of things that in Christ means. In Christ means, number one, That all who are in Christ are subject to all that Christ is. What I mean by that is when if we are in Christ, then church and our worship of Christ is not a Sunday morning activity that we do. It is all of who we are. It is not a Sunday morning date or, or activity that we're a part of, but it becomes all of who we are because our greatest desire is to gather with people who are in Christ with us worshiping and proclaiming his name, hearing the preaching of his word, giving our tithes and offerings back to him to do that because unlike Barry White, our first, our last, our everything is not a nice-looking lady. It is Jesus Christ alone. Second, to be in Christ speaks of our exclusivity in our relationship with him. You cannot be in Christ and be in something else. 
What that means is you cannot have as your number one goal or your number one thing to be money or to be a job or to be pleasure and to say, well, I'm in Christ, but I'm into these other things. To be in Christ means everything else is secondary. Everything else takes second and third and fourth place. And Jesus Christ alone is number one. There's nothing, nothing that transcends our relationship with Christ. Third, to be in Christ means that our life's going to be different. What I mean by that is you and I cannot be controlled by other things. And so if you find yourself addicted, listen to anything else but Jesus Christ, then something's wrong. If there's something that controls you more than Christ, whether it be the bottle, whether it be a pill, whether it be a certain activity or a certain pleasure, a certain pursuit, if any of that pursues, uh, pursuits are greater than that of Christ, then you're in those things and not in him. Finally, what to be in Christ means is to be connected to a group of people that may be very different than you, but who have come to know the same gospel that you know. And to be connected to them means that we show love and affection even to those who are vastly different than ourselves. Now, I think for most of us, that's easy to hear. To be in Christ is our goal. For many of you, that's our desire. But here's where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to be in Christ here in the Sugar Grove Sanctuary. It's another to be in Christ where he says, at Colossae. For you and I, maybe it's better to put it this way. Uh, to Tim, I'm writing you to be in Christ, Paul says, in Hinkley. Or in Sugar Grove, or Aurora, or, or Oak Brook, or, or any place in between where, where we do live our lives. You see, it's easy for us to be in Christ when we're surrounded by other Christians. But what about tomorrow? What about when you're surrounded by people who hate the name of Jesus? What about tomorrow when you are around people who are indifferent to the things of Christ? In those moments, Paul says... That we are to be in or at the community we're at. What that means is we cannot be so heavenly minded that we're in Christ all the time. Just loving it. Loving the harp music that the angels are playing. okay, And just sitting there. But that we have to at some point engage the world. At some point we have to move out of the sphere, if you will, uh, of the idea of the sacred. And move back into the secular. And recognize that God has placed us there by his divine will. You are in Yorkville, you are in Elburn, you are in Sugar Grove by the will and plan of God. There's a reason why you're there. There's a reason why you're employed in the places you are. There's a reason why you're in the school that you are. God, by his will, has placed you there for a purpose. Well, what in the world is the purpose? Why we are at Colossae or at Hinkley or, or Sugar Grove is number one. As we live amongst those people, we need to first remember that we were once like them. You see, one of the things that we can do when we engage culture is look down our noses at people and say, what dumb people, what gross people, what sinful people. I'm so glad I'm not like them. Now, you may not say it out loud, but you say it, I'm sure, as I do at times in my spirit. And Paul reminds us, you're going to be out in Colossae, Colossians, but remember this, verse 21 of chapter 1, and you once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So don't forget, when you're out in the world, 
Don't look at people like they're just this grotesque thing that you don't want to spend any time with because you don't want their sin to touch you and make you unholy. Remember, you were once there. And listen, someone who was in Christ came to where you were at at Colossae and shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you. Aren't you glad that someone didn't say, what's that smell? Oh, it's that evil, sick sinner over there named Tim Badal. Aren't you glad that, that people came to you when you were in your sin? When you were in the debauchery that you lived in? They were willing to leave their place in Christ to come and meet you where you were at because you weren't in Christ? Number two, what it means for us if we're going to live in the world is that we've got to put on the things of Christ before we go out there. In chapter 3, it tells us, Uh, that we are to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You want to know if you're in Christ at Colossae? Ask the question, what type of life do the people in my world see in me? Do they roll their eyes when they hear the name of Tim or your name brought up in conversation? Or do they say, wow, there's something about them. They're humble. They're compassionate. I wronged him the other day and and he forgave me. He didn't need to, but, but he did. There's just something about that individual But what we do is we find ourselves in the world and and we hide ourselves and we cover ourselves and we keep ourselves from it. But notice Paul says that when we're in the world, we are to declare to the world that we are in fact in Christ. So when the world is, is talking about all the world's stuff, we need to have enough confidence to be able to say, hey, let me tell you about what Jesus is doing in my life. Well, where does Paul say that? Notice Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Brothers and sisters, we need to be ready using the opportunities we have when we're at Hinkley or Sugar Grove or Newark or wherever we find ourselves. When we have those opportunities, we should not be thinking, i got to get out of there as quick as possible. But I'm going to make the most of the time that I have there Because he says in another passage, the days are evil. So I want to use as much opportunity as I have to be the best Christian I can be. To proclaim to the world, I in fact am in Christ. So a watching world can see what it means to be in Christ altogether. And I will tell you, I think we've got here at Village Bible Church the in Christ thing down. I think we have lost our way when we understand what it means to be at Sugar Grove. Because if we were that type of Christians, then we'd be far more engaged in the world than I think we are. Some years ago, Amanda and I had to redo our social calendar because what we began to learn was all of our friendships, because the church is so big and because Tim and Amanda are so nice, we have lots of friends from here. You're supposed to laugh at that, by the way. Okay? And all of our friendships came from here. And we had to ask the question, when was the last time we had our neighbors over? When was the last time we engaged with our friends uh, or people outside that that we had non-believing friends involved? And I'll tell you, it's hard at times. It's difficult at times. Not too long ago, we had some friends over uh, that, or friends, some people that we we, uh, knew from uh, one of our kids' uh, uh, classmates. And 
and the, and the guy brought over a six-pack of beer, and then he pulled out another six-pack of beer. Before I knew it, my, my buddy was sitting there in my family room slurring speech all over the place, and it was hard to have a conversation with them. And they, they finished up and said, man, you guys do things differently than we do. The guy said to me, you're the first guy that hasn't gotten drunk on a Saturday night with me. And it was hard. And i got to be honest with you, it wasn't like hanging out with Christians. That, that's a good time. But we got to do that sometimes, right? we got to be engaged with them. And it's going to mean saying no to maybe some of the people at the church. Yes, fellowship is important. But brothers and sisters, we have been placed in the communities where we live for a purpose. Not so that we can get in our cars and drive to the nice people of Village Bible Church and the surrounding communities, but to engage our neighbors to the point of action. It's a part of our mission statement, and we need to do it. And so that is something we need to engage in, and balancing that is going to be incredibly difficult. And so here Paul is telling us, and he's telling the church of Colossae, you get the, get the holiness down. Notice he says in the text, the holy brothers or saints, I'm sorry, saints and faithful brothers, that connection to in Christ and at Colossae is important. Connect that if you write in your Bibles. Connect those two words, uh, the saints, holy ones, literally, and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. How are we to be in Christ? We are to be the holy ones. Connect in Christ to those saints. You want to be in Christ? you got to be holy. you got to pursue holiness. you got to ask for God to change your heart and make you more like his son. To be faithful is to be faithfully engaged in the world where Christ has put you. So he moves on. And in this we have the third point, which is the crisis that the Christians were facing. What was going on? Why why was Paul writing this letter? He was writing it because of some different issues that had come up. Epaphras has now gotten involved in a church And the church has been growing, it's steadily growing in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But then some issues from the outside and from within start springing up. And Epaphras says, I don't know how to solve these issues. And he heads out to Rome to go find his faithful apostle who will help him to learn these things. And what issues does he bring up? Number one, he brings up that people challenge the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The first crisis that faced the Colossians was that Jesus was no longer number one. Can I tell you that though we are 2,000 years separated from the the study and the letter of Colossae, the same things are going on today? That Jesus Christ, listen, in this pluralistic and tolerant society, Jesus has not been shoved out and thrown to the garbage pit. Please hear this. Jesus has not been given that place in our world what jesus has been given is a place on the mantle of all other gods and jesus is fine there nobody's going to have maybe a hardcore atheist or satanist may not like jesus in that way but our world for the most part says you can have your jesus but he's no different than buddha he's no different than allah he's no different than the teachings of hinduism he's no different than the the spiritual guides of the new age Jesus is fine. You bring your Jesus, but put him on the same level playing field as every other place. And that's why every time we see a public prayer service, we will pray in the name of Allah, Hindu, Buddha, and the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus hasn't been thrown to the garbage pile. He's been devalued to be where all the other little gods are at. And here's what the book of Colossians is going to say unapologetically. Jesus Christ is 
always has been, and always will be number one. There is no equal, there is no competitor, there is no level standing. Jesus is above all and in all. 30 different times in this book, you will see that word all, and Jesus is always above it. And so if you are going to struggle with Jesus being to, you being told that Jesus is number one, if you think it is intolerant for me to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you're going to really struggle with the book of Colossians. Because that's what it is over and over and over again. Jesus reigns supreme. He's, as my Spanish friends would say, numero uno. Okay? Number two. Christians had little confidence in their faith. Christians had little confidence in their faith. In light of this pluralistic setting, Christians began to see themselves as one sect among many. They heard people talk about new wisdom. They heard people talk about new emanations, a new spirituality taking on different forms and different styles. And they wondered what was lacking in them. That same old gospel, that old trusty gospel no longer had the glitz and glamour of the new things that people around Colossae were talking about. They no longer saw the power that they once did in their lives. They felt like they were losing the battle. But Paul reminds them, and he reminds us today, that we are not losing the battle at all. Listen to me, the battle has already been won by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so you got to stop, Paul says to the Colossae church, and he says to us today, stop Christians walking around with a loser limp when you're the victor. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, we need to have confidence in our faith. We need to grow in our faith. So Paul says in second, uh, the second chapter of Colossians in verse 6 and 7, Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We are on the victor's side. We have an inheritance, the book of Colossians says, that is waiting for us in glory. So we don't need to lose our way. We don't need to come up with new glitzy things. We need to be reminded that the same gospel that saved the Colossians is the same gospel that saves us today. Number three, Christians preferred closed-off living. In Colossians 2.18, we are introduced to a group of people that believe that the way that you get close to God is by separating yourself from the world. In Colossians, they were called the Essenes. They believed that everything in the world was evil. And so the best way to avoid evil was to do all you can to avoid the world. You say, well, who would believe that? I'm going to tell you today that there are people in our midst, in this place, who have adopted the Essenes way of living. Just separate yourself from the world. Don't have any involvement with the world. No friends from the world. Don't be engaged in anything of the world. Make sure, listen, that everything you do has a Christian label on it. Because anything that comes from the world that isn't Christian is of the devil. Let me tell you something. That is not true at all. To say that that is true is to nullify the common grace of God working in this world and in people's lives. And I will tell you, you don't think that way anyway with all sorts of things. So you start separating things. Well, I have to do this in a Christian way. I have to do that in a Christian way. But then when it comes to a doctor who takes care of your needs uh, medically, 
you don't sit there and say, hey, before you give me that penicillin, um, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Before you re replace my hip, do you know Jesus? Well, you know that God has given intellect to those individuals. You use the internet, and Al Gore isn't a believer, right? Okay? So we use things that we praise God for because every good and perfect gift comes from above. God has given us wonderful things. And don't try to find ways to put Christian labels on everything. It doesn't have to be that. You don't have to do that. What you need to do is be able to understand how man has corrupted things. But just because man has corrupted things doesn't mean that it's bad. Man has corrupted marriage in our day and age. Does that make marriage bad? No, it makes man bad, right? People take things and, and they use things that God has given for our good and we abuse them. Does that make those things bad? No. The Essenes said anything that man touched that was bad, stay away from. Be careful, church, that you don't fall into the same line of thinking that if it doesn't have a Christian name to it, if it doesn't have a Christian label to it, that is in fact bad. Test the spirits, the scripture says. This is what Paul tells us to do. In Colossians chapter, uh, chapter 3, it tells us that uh, we are to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts so that we may be called to one body and being thankful that whatever we do, whether in word and deed, we do all these things to the glory of God. And we do that test and ask the question, not everything I do, quote unquote, is Christian, but it is to be done all to the glory of God. We are in Christ and our engagement in the world must have that as a part of that in Christ living as well. Notice next one. Christians were separated from their beliefs, separated their beliefs from their conduct. Oh, we do this a lot. In the first century, Gnosticism was a huge thing. We'll talk about Gnosticism because I believe that Gnosticism is alive and well today. And it's alive and well in evangelical Christian uh, living as it was in the time of Colossae. And here's what Gnosticism thought. Gnosticism taught that there was a dividing line between that which was the flesh and that which was the spirit. And 1 John talks about this a lot as well because Gnosticism was alive and well in the days of the writing of 1 John. And so here's how Gnosticism would work. You had a secular life and you had a spiritual life. You had your Monday through Saturday life and you had your Sunday morning life. You had your at work life and you had your uh, Christian life. Here's how they would define it. A guy could live like H-E double hockey sticks Monday through Saturday and say that's the flesh and the flesh is evil. But he could walk into church, be a leader of a church and, and, and be engaged in worship as a church and sing praises to God though he's cheating on his wife, though he's abusing his kids, though he's involved in all kinds of debauchery. He can raise his hands to the Lord and say blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because the flesh is evil but the spirit is good. And some of us right now are living a Gnostic life. We've bought into this knowledge that Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's our fire insurance. And that's another aspect of, of Gnosticism that we'll talk about in the days to come. This wisdom, this enlightened truth. We get enlightened, but then we can live like hell on Monday through Saturday and then say we're Christians on Sunday. There is no sacred and secular in Jesus' world. He's in all and above all. And so what we need to recognize is, is where sin damages, grace rebuilds. 
Where sin brings chaos, grace restores order. Where sin brings death and despair, grace brings hope and life. And so we don't need to separate our fleshly life from our spiritual life. They're one and the same. We are the temple of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that means that our right beliefs will always impact right behavior. Finally, people were duped by counterfeit spirituality. I won't spend a lot of time here, but Colossians was plagued by all kinds of new spirituality. We'll address these in the future, but these spirituality involves celebrations of special days, a heavy focus on celestial events, the worship of angels, the elevation of people's dreams and visions, and even those who promoted that a certain way of eating produced greater holiness in the one who ate those certain things. And the list goes on. Can I tell you amidst Christianity that there is great uh, evil being done with the gospel of Jesus Christ? One of the most well-known, and I'm going to get some people angry with me, one of the most well-known devotionals that is sold right now in Christian bookstores is a book called Jesus Calling. And the woman will tell you and read on some of her, her, her entries that where she gets her truth for each of those daily devotionals is because she has an up-close and personal encounter verbally uh, with the heavenly realms, angels, and God himself. And Christians, including some of our own people here, read that stuff, post it on Facebook without ever thinking, maybe I need to check this person because she sure does sound spiritual, doesn't she? Yeah, she's spiritual. And not all spiritual things are of God. We need to be careful of that. One of the high priestesses, if you will, of this new spirituality is Oprah Winfrey. She has concocted all kinds of teachers from uh, Eckhart Tolle to Deepak Chopra to uh, Rob Bell. All from all different streams of, of theology. And she's brought them together and said the way that you find God today is by finding God, the real God, through all the religions. You don't think that that counterfeit spirituality is going on? We are taken as evangelicals, hook, line, and sinker. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you read. The Bible says we are called to be Bereans because there's a lot of counterfeit garbage that is out there. We need to be careful. So what do we need to do? We're going to read this book and this correspondence. Write this down. It's my final point. It's a short one. What is the correspondence written to correct the air? There's a lot of air out there. There's a lot of air in our church that that we've bound uh, ourselves with. And here's the answer. The answer is the book of Colossians. And the book of Colossians is going to say this. The answer to our hopelessness in this world, the answer to the air of spirituality in this world, the answer to all of our problems in faith and doctrine in this world is one simple answer, Jesus Christ. He's the preeminent one. And as we study Colossians, we're going to see in this study three things that God or Christ is preeminent over. He's preeminent over our world. So when you turn on the news and you see the world falling apart and going into chaos, when we see all types of war and rumors of war, and we all start getting all worked up, we need to remember Jesus Christ is preeminent. Number two, he is eminent, he's to be preeminent in our worship. 
And that means it matters what we say about Jesus. It matters how we worship Jesus. It matters what we say is holy and what is right. We need to understand that. And if Christ is preeminent in our worship, then he is our number one focus, and we better get that worship right. Because if we don't, we're leading people into error. And finally, it involves being preeminent in our walk. Your life has to change. So Christ has to be preeminent in how we treat our families, how we treat our spouses, how we work, how we play, how we engage in school, how we engage in the neighborhood, how we fellowship with believers, how we interact with unbelievers, that at the end of all of this, Christ is preeminent. And Paul says it this way, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so the application today is, Jesus is number one, live like it, worship like it, and show the world that he's number one in all that we say and do. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we've, we've done a lot today. And I pray that we've only started our study. I pray that this word has whet the appetite of each person here to know a little bit more about uh, the study of Colossians, that we would glean the truths of it. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be first and foremost in our lives. Lord, I pray this week that each of us would take some time remembering what we've heard today and ask the question, are you the preeminent one in all that I say and do? Are you the preeminent one in my neighborhood as you are in my church? Are you preeminent in the way I treat people I don't know to the greatest of relationships, my spouse or my children? Are you preeminent in the way that I spend my money? Are you preeminent in the way I use my tongue? Lord, that in all things you might be first and preeminent in all. Lord, I pray that that would be the truth that would bind us together as a church, that it would be the catalyst what sends us off to tell the world about Jesus, that everything we do, whether in word or deed, that it would be done to glorify your preeminence. So, Lord, we leave this place and we go out into that world. Though we are in Christ, we are at Sugar Grove. And so send us forth into this world confident in the faith that we have that we might be able to change the world around us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Begin that now, Lord, as we leave this place, as we fellowship together so that you may be preeminent in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.